to the Christian Life Austin podcast. Visit clcaustin.com for the latest news, register for an upcoming event, or support the Christian Life ministry through our online giving portal. We trust that you'll enjoy today's message. Thank you once again for listening. series on Wednesday night in worship and word called Beyond Faith. How many of you have not missed a Wednesday the last couple of weeks? Awesome. So you guys sort of know where we are. For those of you who do not, let me catch you up. Two weeks ago we talked about faith and specifically faith in the life of the believer, the operation of faith in the life of the believer and how that changes really the Uh, expectation that you have from God, you're willing to expect more from God when you believe God can do anything and your faith is raised in God. It's amazing what you will expect God for if you believe God can do anything. And then last week we talked about hope beyond faith we said is hope. And specifically we talked about what the Bible would refer to as the blessed hope or the hope of heaven. How many of you want to make heaven when you leave this world and into the next. I don't know if you were sort of raised in a faith tradition like I was, but I want you to know without any apology that you're in a church tonight that believes that you and I will live forever somewhere and there's only two destinations after this life and that's either heaven or hell. And though we don't preach a lot about those ideas, really our little span of life, what you and I do right now, is so minute in the light of eternity that we spend somewhere. And how we live this determines how we live this. And what happens here determines what happens here. And so last week we talked about the hope that is in heaven. And so tonight we're going to talk about beyond faith and we're going we're to talk about love. So we're sort of going to, you can follow along your notes if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to do that. First Corinthians is where we will spend all night, First Corinthians, the 13th chapter. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there? If not, you can just look on your paper. First Corinthians 13 and 13, primarily sort of that overarching idea, what we have done the last two weeks and tonight. And it says this, everybody there, First Corinthians 13, 13, hey, why don't you read out loud with me, would you do that? And now abides faith... Hope and love, these three. But the greatest of these is, everybody say love. The greatest of these is love. Of faith in God to do the impossible. Of hope in life beyond this world. And love, the greatest of these three attributes, Paul would say, is love. Now that's a pretty big statement, I have to be honest with you. To say that there's something greater than faith in God for the miraculous. Now this is not salvation faith. This is not putting your faith in Jesus to save you from your sins. This is faith for the operation of the move of God in your life. And he said there's something greater than that. And then there's hope for heaven and life after this life. And he said there's something greater than that. And that thing is love. And so we're going to talk about love tonight in Beyond Faith. Close your eyes. I want you to ask God to open your heart. Lord Jesus, I'm going to give you the next half hour or so. We're going to open your word, and I want you to open my heart to receive. I want you to open my mind to be ready. God, I want to leave here better than I came. I want my life to be changed because of the time I spend together in your word. 
in Jesus' name. And everybody say amen. Amen. High five your neighbor, or if you don't know them, or if you're your spouse, you can hit them or slap them on the arm. You can be seated. Everybody has a handout, yes? Grab a pen, preferably out of your wife's purse or any other vacant purse you see there. I'm going to try to go slow tonight. That's completely against how I normally preach. And so if you're here for the first time and hearing me preach, uh, this is your lucky night. Because normally I'm sweating and saying something really loud. And so I'm going to try to teach tonight. And in this setting, it, um, it's hard to do because you folks like to come to church. And so when I look out there, you folks make me want to do wild stuff. So I'm going to try to look down at my paper and y'all don't do anything wild, okay? First Corinthians 13 is an interesting chapter. Really, this whole book is an interesting book. As you read through your Bible, I hope that you do that. You have a particular Bible reading chart or system. Corinthians is a remarkable letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he's in Rome, actually, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, and specifically this first letter is just interesting how he deals with the Christians at Corinth. Now, if you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity, uh, all of the Pauline writings or the epistles or the letters are written to people who are already converts, people who have already repented of their sins, put their faith in Jesus for salvation, and who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is writing to this group of Christians. So when you read that, you have to sort of filter that through. These people aren't far from God. These people are Christians. So when you read what we're going to read tonight, when we walk through what we're going to walk through tonight, I don't want you to think, well, that's for my sinner husband. That's not for me. That's for... Right? That's not for me. It's for them. He's not talking to me. No, Paul is writing this to people who are already following Jesus. So... Chapters 12 and 13 and 14 in this first letter to the Corinthians are really one unit. 12, 13, and 14, Paul is giving instruction to the church at Corinth. In chapter 12, chapter 12, just before what we read uh, tonight, talks about the operation of the gifts of the Spirit or the Holy Spirit's working in the context of the church at Corinth and uh, the context of our church, how the Holy Spirit would work and specifically how he would gift individuals and how they were to use that gifting inside the body of Christ. And so Paul writes about these gifts of the Spirit as they're commonly referred to in theology and how these things work out and how there is diversity, listen, of these gifts of the Spirit. And yet, they all contribute to the unity of one body. Everybody say one. In case you didn't know this, I want to be the first to tell you that not everybody has the same gift, but everybody that's full of the Holy Spirit has a gift. Say amen to that. Just because it's not like yours doesn't mean it's not right. Just because it looks different than yours doesn't mean it's not right. Just because the giftings of someone that you're in church with tonight happen to be different giftings than yours doesn't mean that theirs are incorrect and yours are better than, it just means you are different. And Paul in the the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians is saying that whatever it is that your gifting is, these gifts of the Spirit, they work together to form this one body and there's unity in that body. And then we move to chapter 13. Now don't get confused that these are divided into chapters and verses because this is still one letter and you have to sort of think that Paul is writing 
this one letter and this same theme is running through. He didn't stop and start a new page or a new paragraph or put page numbers at the bottom of his letter and that's how he divided it up. So this is still the continuation of the same theme he's talking to the church at Corinth about which is the gifts of the Spirit. In chapter 13, in chapter 12, he talks about the context of the Spirit. Chapter 13, he talks about the motivation of using the gifts of the Spirit. Everybody say motivation. What drives the user who is using the gifting from the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 14, he talks about the proper operation of those gifts, how they are to operate inside of the church. So again, let me, let me walk you through. I don't want to uh, assume your ignorance. I just sort of want to give you some context to where we are tonight. In chapter 12, Paul is saying everybody has a gift and all of those gifts should work together. And then in 13, he says, the motivation for those gifts and how they work inside a God-honoring, Spirit-led church is love. And then in chapter 14, he said, this is how people who love that have gifts of the Spirit are to operate. Does everybody understand? Say amen. amen. So that's the context. So Paul is laying the foundation in chapter 12 that we're all a part of this system. And then, and then he said that we, you and I need the Holy Spirit to work through our lives in whatever gift he chooses. Listen, this is on your notes. I want you to underline this and don't ever forget this. There are no spiritual lone rangers and there are no spiritual superstars. If somebody's here who thinks you're a lone ranger, I would argue, according to the Bible, you aren't a spiritual person. If someone here thinks that your gifting is a superstar gifting, I would argue, according to the Bible, that you are not a spiritual person. Because according to Paul, there are no spiritual lone rangers who work on their own, and there are no spiritual superstars who are better than anybody else because of their particular gifting. Don't punch your neighbor if you think they're one of them. Every part of the body, Paul would say, is important, even if it's not as flashy as the other ones. Now, I was raised in a faith tradition where flashy got all of the attention. And it's easy in a spirit-filled church for flash to get all of the attention. How many of you know that it's not all in flash? And sometimes people hide behind flashy spirituality so they don't have to face how empty their spiritual lives really are. And they don't have to face how actually they have very shallow faith in Jesus and very shallow spiritual lives. But if there's this sort of outward flashy show of spirituality or the gifting of the Spirit, that somehow that's better than. And according to Paul, that isn't true. And so Paul would end chapter 12 by saying, uh, here's the gifts of the Spirit. Here's how they should work together in the church. And then he, he ends so remarkably by saying, now I want to show you a more excellent Way. That's an interesting way to close the chapter about gifts of the Spirit. I mean, if I were Paul, or if I were a reader of this letter, my first inclination is to go, how is it more excellent than, the, than what seems to be the apex of spirituality, which are these spiritual gifts? How is there something higher than, greater than, what Paul would say more excellent than, these gifts of the Spirit. That's hard for me to wrap my head around how Paul could talk about these gifts of the Spirit and then say, but there's something that you need more. These are supernatural spiritual gifts that Paul is outlining and defining and that are working in the lives of Spirit-filled people and a Spirit-led church. And then he closes this particular paragraph of this letter with an interesting set of questions. If you have your notes, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, if you're reading in your Bibles... I'm reading from the New King James Version. Verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and 
members individually. Verse 28, and God has appointed these in the church, apostles and prophets and teachers. Please don't get misunderstood by first and second and third. That has nothing to do. He's just listing. He's just writing a letter and numbering. Apostles and prophets and teachers and then people that work miracles and gifts of healings and helps and administrations and varieties of tongues. One of the things I love about Paul is that he put people that help folks on the same line as people who are apostles and prophets. I love that about God, that he would not elevate one above the other, that he is no respecter of persons, that if you're here tonight thinking, what can I do? All I know how to do is help people. Good news is this, in God's economy, people that help are just like people who are prophets and apostles. These are giftings to the body. And so, verse 29 says, are all apostles? Here's those series of questions. Are all apostles and are all prophets? And is everybody a teacher? And do all work miracles? I I would answer this pretty simply with, nope, not me. So do all have the gift of healing? No. And do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And then verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the best gifts. Then... He says something so remarkable. Again, he sort of sets this hierarchy of spiritual giftings and he he elevates this to the apex of the spirit-filled life. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's something more excellent than that. There's something that I want to show you that's a more excellent way. There's something that has to be the motivation whereby all of these gifts flow through before they really honor God. No matter how gifted you are, listen close, no matter how gifted you are, either in ministry or in your job, no matter how successful you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ and your relationship with people, no matter how close to God you are, listen to that, because I mean that sentence. No matter how close to God you are, there is one overarching principle and attribute that every spirit-filled, spirit-led believer must possess that guides our lives. And if it does not, whatever you do for the Lord is wasted. Tell somebody I said that. Whatever it is that you do for the Lord that isn't driven by this one principle and attribute, if you do not do it with, everybody shout love. It is an absolute waste of your time. In the faith tradition I grew up in, I heard people sometimes would talk about the passage in the New Testament where they would come to Jesus and say, but we cast out devils in your name and we healed the sick in your name and we did all these things. And I would always be perplexed, Pastor Randy, how is it such that these people had these spiritual gifts and could work with with these giftings and the Holy Spirit would work through them and yet when they get to this final time, Jesus would say, I didn't know you. And I think the answer may be this, that it doesn't matter how much you do for the Lord. If it's not done with love, it is wasting your time. You don't get points for just showing up. You don't get points and credit for pulling people out of wheelchairs. You and I do not have a spiritual chart like like when you go to school and you get stars by your name for doing all the good stuff. That's just not true. Let me tell you what honors God. Let me tell you how God said, these are how people will know you're my disciples, Jesus would say. Let me tell you how God would find a disciple, how the, the most easily discernible attribute he looks at. Love. Not flash. Not gift. But love. 
So 1 Corinthians 13 is such a famous passage. I'm gonna, I don't, how many of you had this read at your wedding? Don't be ashamed. Yeah. How many of you aren't married thinking, that's a good idea? You read it at weddings all the time. It's so routine. We do that. If you're not careful, this sort of starts to sound like a Hallmark card. And people start thinking, I don't even know if that's in the Bible or not. Have you ever heard something that you thought was in the Bible you're not really sure is there? And you heard somebody quote it like it was Bible? <laughs> if you're not careful, 1 Corinthians 13 starts sounding that way. It starts sounding like, like a Hallmark card. And you're going, I'm not, I'm not even sure if Love Never Fails is in the Bible or if that's like a Sandy Patty song. I don't really know. I don't remember if it's in there or not. I'm going to quote it as though it's there. And so we sort of minimize this idea of love, but this chapter is so much more than saying, I love you. It's so much more than a Hallmark card. It's so much deeper than that. I wish it was just that easy because you and I could be off the hook. But I've got to be honest with you. 1 Corinthians, this, this 13th chapter, is a pretty challenging chapter. I want to dive into that. It's not just saying love. It's not just possessing love. Listen, this talks about how you express your love and the motive of your love and the application of your love. Love is more than a feeling. Say amen. Amen. All the married folks, shout amen. Amen. If you waited till you loved her or him, you would never get married till you felt like I loved them. I feel like I love them. Most of us would not still be married if we went on how we felt about them some days. Not every day. If you feel that every day, you need to schedule an appointment with pastor. But some days... It's okay. We don't go on how we feel because love is not just a feeling. Love is what I do. It's an action. It's a choice. It's how I choose to live my life. And so the problem with some of us with love and grasping love is we keep waiting on goosebumps and they just never come. We keep waiting on this feeling. I'm going to love my brother when I feel like giving in, you know. I'm going to love somebody of a different race when I get over it and feel like giving in. I'm going to love that person who wronged me across the church when I feel like enough time's passed. I'm going, to love my, I'm going to love my wife when I feel like she's repented enough. I'm going to, I'm going to love my husband when I feel like he's suffered enough. Love is not a feeling. It's more than a feeling. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, here's what that means. To be part of the fruit of the Spirit means this, that it's real biblical love is this produce, it's this fruit, it's this harvest of the Holy Spirit's working in your life. I would say it like this, a little bit simpler. If you have a problem loving, you have a problem with the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. Now that's not flashy. That hurts. That hurts me. So let's dive in and see what Paul would say about love. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels I have, and I don't have love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I don't have that by the way, and though I have all faith, and though I could remove mountains, and I don't have love, listen to this, I am, everybody say nothing. That's not a Hallmark card. 
That's pretty hard. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, not some of them, not 10% of them, all of them. And if I give my body to be burned, how many of you are volunteering for that tonight? If you did, and you do not have love, it's a waste of time. And Paul would say, it profits me nothing. No matter how much I know, or how much I do, or how much wisdom I have, or if I can speak these incredible mysteries that wow the masses, or if I prophesy with boldness, if I start all of my sentences with, thus saith the Lord. And I don't know why people that start their sentences always say that. For some reason, it appears as though the Holy Spirit only speaks in King James English. I don't know why. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him why he always talks like Shakespeare. But growing up in a spirit-filled church, every time there was tongues and interpretation, I don't have time to talk to you about tongues and interpretation, but every time the gift of the Spirit was in operation, God would always speak in King James English. And I always wanted to ask him, why? Why do you talk like that? I don't understand it. He may understand why. Even if you do that, and you don't have love, Paul would say, you might as well be blowing your horn in bumper-to-bumper traffic. Nobody's listening. And it doesn't matter at all. Write this down. Nothing truly spiritual or God-inspired is ever profitable to anybody unless it happens with love. Nothing spiritual or God-inspired ever helps anybody, ever profits anybody unless the inspiration and the motive is love. No matter what I do, healing or miracles, or, or, or it doesn't really matter how, how great or how flashy it is. Without love, it's meaningless. This one really kills me. I, I don't know why Paul would put this in here. It doesn't matter how much I give of myself. I can be the humblest person on earth, the most giving person on earth. Paul would say you could give your physical body to be burned for your faith. And if it's not done with love, it profits absolutely That's why it's so much deeper than faith and hope. That's why it's so much greater than flashy gifts. That's why it's so weighty for us to understand how God desires us to love one another. So I want to ask you what kind of love is this that God would ask of us. Every, every time the word love appears in this chapter, it is agape love. Would you write that down? A-G-A-P-E, agape love. This is a different kind of love than the other forms of love that are mentioned in the New Testament. Greek has three specific words it uses for love in the New Testament. Filial love in Greek is the idea of brotherly love or friendship. You know, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, gets its name from this word filio. And and eros love is the idea of sexual love. And so we get the word erotic from that word. Can, can I be frank with you for just a moment? Our world is inundated and our culture is saturated with eros love, sexual love. Every secular song, every TV show, every movie that you watch has this overtly sexual message and connotation. Can I tell you that and you not get upset? Our culture is saturated with eros love. Sex sells in America, and frankly, it's kind of sickening. 
But we're an eros kind of generation. For whatever reason, the motives of which I don't have time to tell you, but we just are this, we're this culture that sort of values eros love and sexual images and sexual overtly messages. And it's just, it's a really sickening thing. And this is our culture. And so when filial love comes along, when there are organizations or people that do something that's kind, you know, when they help people like serving the poor or feeding the hungry or responding to a disaster, when, when when people have this filial love towards their brother, as a culture, we always elevate these people because it's so refreshing to have another kind of love than this sick sexual love that we all have. Does that make sense? So we're swimming around in this cesspool. The only kind of love we really know in our culture is this sexual connotation love. And when someone comes along loving their neighbor in this filial love, we think, man, that's special. And if you're not careful, you'll attribute God-honoring, spirit-empowered love to this brotherly filial love because it feels so much better than eros. But I have to tell you that filial or eros love are not the two loves that we're talking about here. In this passage, we're talking about agape love. And agape love is not sexual in its nature and it's not just love towards our brothers. It is this selfless Love. It implies the kind of love that God has for you and me. That's why Jesus came for God so. Listen, hang on before you clap. He said, That's the kind of love I want you to have. That kind that gives selflessly. That kind that says, I don't know if any other sacrifice would work, God said. For thousands of years, I've allowed these people to interact with me with sacrificing animals. And just this doesn't work anymore. And God said, the only thing that will work is if I give my Self, And that's why Jesus came to give himself. And God said, that's the kind of love I want you to have. Y'all getting me excited. I'm going to come back down. I want this agape love in you, Jesus would say. I want this kind of love that it's an action word love. And it doesn't regard self-interest or self-gratification. Would you write that down? I think probably the highest detriment to our culture and our generation is the idea of self-interest and self-gratification. I'll do it as long as I get something out of it. I don't mind helping you. I just want to know what I get in return. I don't mind doing this for you. I don't mind being with you. I just want to know what's in it for me. And agape love stands in such contrast to that. Agape love is the very character of God. That's why 1 John 4 and 8 says, Whoever does not love, does not know God, because God is, everybody shout love. That's agape love. It's not what he does, it's who he is. God does not love people, God is love. And so his very character is love. It's not just God feels good about people. That's filial love. That's what we think God does. That's why it's so easy for you to get uh, misunderstood about what God, God's angry at me. He must be mad at me. Because we think that God can withhold love like that. That's what filial love is. We say, well, as long as you do what I like, then we're on the same page and we're on the same team. But when you stop doing what I like, I'm going to withdraw love from you. And God can't do that because God doesn't give love. God is love. And he's that agape, that selfless love. Everything that you strive for,
Whoever you want to be and whatever you want to do, whatever you want people to think about you, whatever you want to accomplish, both spiritually and physically, everything, everything, everything should go through this filter. Am I doing this with love? Am I doing this with agape love for people? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Now listen, before I go on, i got to tell you this, and this is just me, and I think this is probably the way our church feels, but I just want you to know in case you're here for the very first time. The only way that you can love like this is by being filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot love like this any other way. You cannot find this love in worldly philosophy. You can't find it in philanthropy. And you can't find it in religious piety. Only a person who is full of the Holy Spirit can exhibit this kind of love. Now listen. That's why some believers in the house tonight struggle with love so much. And struggle with loving their neighbor and their spouse and their children and the one who wronged them. Am I telling you you're not saved? No. Am I telling you you're not a believer? No. I am just telling you, you cannot really know this love until you are full of the Holy Spirit. This is a Holy Spirit-empowered love. That's why this church teaches you that after you repent of your sins, after you put your faith in Jesus, it is our privilege, it's our opportunity to come to God boldly and say, I want that Holy Spirit working in my life. I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that I can exhibit these giftings. Motive of love. Only powered by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at this kind of character of love, and I have to hurry. This is, this is Holy Spirit-empowered, agape love. And, and Paul defines what agape means and how agape love is distributed and, and, and how it's demonstrated. And so he does it in terms of what love is and what love is not. What agape love is and what agape love is not. And there are eight things that agape love does, and there are eight things that agape love does not do. And so if you have your notes or your Bible, 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient. And it's kind, and it doesn't envy, and it doesn't boast, and it's not proud. And it's not rude, and it's not self-seeking, and it's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. And love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. And love always protects, and always trusts, and always hopes, and always perseveres. And love never So the eight things that love is, is patient and kind and it rejoices in truth and it protects and it trusts and it hopes and it perseveres and it's unfailing. And the eight things that love is not is it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not prideful, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it doesn't have anger, it doesn't hold grudges, and it doesn't delight in evil. So you could form sort of four basic concepts around all of these. And if you want to sort of group them together on your notes, I think that'd be great. How you deal with others is one way that God wants you to understand agape love. That's being patient and kind and protecting versus rude and angry and grudges. And then how you deal with your life is another category. And that's about being patient and hoping and trusting and persevering and not failing. And, and then how, how you have a relationship with yourself that's never failing and patient and kind instead of envy and pride and self-seeking and boasting. And then finally, your relationship to God is sort of grouped together in these Characteristics of agape love 
your, your love to God always hopes and perseveres and rejoices in truth instead of pride and self-seeking and delighting in evil. And so I want to go through these one at a time, and I'll do that very quickly. I know when preachers say that, you always start counting. He's only on number four. I'll be quick. Number one, agape love is patient. Agape love is patient. This comes from two Greek words meaning long-tempered. Vine's Expository Dictionary says that patience is the self-restraint in the face of provocation. (laughs) It's one thing to say I'm self-controlled. It's another thing to say I'm self-controlled when you provoke me. I haven't met many people that struggle with self-constraint. I've met a ton of people who struggle with self-constraint when they're provoked. But patience says, this agape love with people says, I'm not going to just fly off the handle. Do you know somebody who has a short fuse? Don't point. You get easily frustrated when things don't go your way or don't happen your way. My baby girl who's over here not listening to me watching bubble guppies right now. She has decided that she's almost two and she's, she's decided that when I say no or mommy says no, it's probably not good. It's not good for me, certainly, and it's probably not correct, to be honest. So she's decided to start closing her eyes. And somehow in her brain, she thinks her eyes are connected to her ears. And that if I can't see you, I can't hear you. So when we say no, she just closes her eyes. And then we don't exist. Then I can do whatever I want. And if we ask her to open her eyes, then we still say, no, it, if it doesn't happen just the way she thinks or just it's not fast enough or whatever, she, she's very dramatic. She gets that from me. And <laughs> she's very dramatic. And she'll put her hands today. Brandy said she put her hands over her face. It's not just to go pout like this. The whole way she's running to go pout, she's doing this. Because it didn't happen the way I wanted it to. It's funny when they're 20 months, but I know a lot of 20-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 60-year-olds that act the same way. When it doesn't go their way, this is how I act. Now listen, i got to be honest with you. I'm going to confess to you, patience is something I struggle with and patient love. Let me give you an example. I, I get easily frustrated when I go to Walmart. Now, you're laughing already because you know you do the same thing. I go to Walmart, and I get all of my items, and I go to the checkout, and I have the spiritual gift of picking the longest line. I'm going to be in the slowest line. It doesn't really matter what there is. There could be a line to my left with 14 more people in it who have, bag, who have buggies full of groceries, and so help me God they will get through before me. It's a gift I have. You're welcome. The reason why most of the times this is true for me at Walmart is because I'm behind almost always the lady who is still paying for groceries with a checkbook. Now let me tell you, I don't want to hurt your feelings. They electronically process your check. Get you a debit card. Put it in your front pocket so you can get it out quick. But I'm behind the lady who thinks they still hold that check. 
And it just dawned on her when they finished ringing up $311 worth of groceries that she actually has to pay for them. So at the moment when it dawns on her, she picks up this purse that is large enough to be checked as baggage at the airport. And digs around for her checkbook. No need to prepare before this. I didn't know this was coming. (laughs) Locating the checkbook isn't enough. So help me God. You know people like this. If you're going to still use a checkbook for the love of all that is holy, put a pen with it. Put a pen inside it. Here's my checkbook. Where's my pen? Where's my pen? And she's pulling out bags of Cheetos and fly swatters and half drunk bottles of water oh yeah and the line beside me zipping by I didn't know this was coming I didn't know I had to do this. And she's pulling all di- baby diapers and all kinds of stuff out. And I'm behind her biting my nails to my knuckles thinking, oh my God, I'm behind Mary Poppins. There's no telling what's going to come out of this purse. Now, I, I will buy your groceries if you'll just go. And now our illustrious city has decided not to have bags. This is suicide for me. This happens. I promise before God this happens to me. Every single time. It's ne- She just said, bless him, Lord. She's worried about me. It's ne- Listen, then I think I'm going to go to the self-checkout. So help me, I've done this. And the people I get behind at the self-checkout, they don't know the the codes to their fruits and vegetables and then and then you scan something and for whatever reason I always go to the self checkout that doesn't know when I put my thing on the bag over here it just keeps yelling at me to put my item in the bag and I'm saying there are no bags what am I supposed to do laugh but I struggle with patience I can't get any help. There's one guy manning four self-checkouts. He's over there helping Mary Poppins process her check. I can't do anything here, and I'm supposed to be patient. Listen. Loving with patience. Loving with patience doesn't just mean when you're at Walmart. It means when you're facing adversity. When the world is crumbling around you, when there's no reason why you should offer the person you're speaking to long-suffering, and yet you do. When there's no reason why in the amount of time that you've given them, they should not have already repented and said they're sorry and made it right, and they still don't, and you're still supposed to love with patience. I like how Peter describes it in his letter. 1 Peter 5 and 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that you may be lifted up in due time. My problem with that is due time. (laughs) How long do I have to love and wait until it happens? That's loving with patience. 
when you get under God's hand and you're waiting there, you don't run away from trouble. You don't run away from God. You say, God, I want that kind of agape spirit-empowered love that you have. And so I'm going to love this person. Love in this situation with long-suffering and patience. And everybody say amen. amen. That's only number one. The Greek word for kind, agape love is kind. It, just, it doesn't just mean being nice. It means to show oneself useful, taking patience one step further. It says not only are you long-tempered against trouble, but you actually reach out with the benefit of uh, others. Most of the time, we're thinking about what's in it for me, but kindness says, what's in it for you? How can this benefit you? Let me ask you, when's the last time you sat down at a business dinner and said, how can this help you? When's the last time you sat across from the table and said, let me, try, let me help you through this. Don't worry about what I get out of this. I want to help you. I want to help your business. That's agape love with kindness. Uh, Paul then, he says it's, it's patient and it's kind. And, and, then he, and then he sort of strings eight negative things together. This is interesting how Paul writes this, but he strings eight negative things together. Oftentimes you and I learn by contrast. We see what love is by carving away what love is not. And so Paul is sort of carving away what love is not. And on your notes, you're still writing, he said love is not envious. Envy comes from the word that means to boil. It it literally means not just what's in it for me, but it's all about me. When when you envy somebody, here's what you're saying. You are so self-focused that anything that somebody else has that I don't have makes my blood boil. That's envy. And agape love doesn't envy. Uh, Envy is the opposite of wanting somebody to benefit. It's saying they don't deserve it like I do. Listen, envy is not just saying I wish I had that. Envy says they don't deserve that, but I do. Envy says they didn't work as hard as I've worked to get that. Envy says they don't need that like I need that. And Paul would say agape, spirit-empowered love, does not envy. And it doesn't boast Boasting says, if you got it, flaunt it. Most of the time, boasting also says, even if you don't have it, just pretend like you do. (laughs) Boasting says, I'm going to put something out there that I'm really not, but I think I am. Paul would say, agape, spirit-empowered love doesn't boast, and it's not proud Agape spirit and love, agape spirit empowered love doesn't puff itself up. It doesn't walk around with all of this puff on the surface and no substance underneath. It's not proud. It's not just flashy on the outside with no depth on the inside. And agape love is not rude, Paul would say. The word here literally means unshapely, kind of like me, unshapely. You could say, you, you could translate this, that rudeness is not pretty to look at. Listen, you know anybody in your life that you just have a hard time being around because you don't know what in the devil they're going to do? They're unpredictable, they're embarrassing, they're unbecoming. Don't point at anybody. According to the Bible, that's rudeness. And agape love says that People aren't around you and they get embarrassed because they don't know what you're going to do next. They don't know what you're going to say next. You're not going to fly off the cuff. You're not unpredictable. And then agape love is not self-seeking. Another way you could say this is it doesn't worship you. 
It doesn't worship me. It doesn't exalt me and my own pleasure and my own ego and my own pride and my own self-interest above yours. Self-seeking people are attention-grabbing people. And agape, spirit-empowered love, doesn't always have to have the attention. It's not always looking for the angle in the room to shine. It's not always looking for the brightest box. It's not always looking for the loudest character. It's not always the loud one at the table, the first one at the meeting talking. It prefers other people in the room. Every once in a while, it'd be nice with agape love if you just shh and let somebody else talk. And agape love is not easily angered. It doesn't get exasperated. This is the opposite of patience. This is why I struggle. <laughs> you, 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 you never know what people who possess this is going to set them off. You know anybody like that? You, you know anybody that you can walk up to them and you have no idea of what you're about to say is going to trigger them to go crazy and start turning tables over and throwing things? And, and you never really knew what it was that set them off? You never really knew how in the world what you said turned into that? Have you ever ended a conversation that just got crazy and there's blood everywhere and people are dying it's just awful and you go... What in the world did I just do? If you're married, man, I know you've done that. You, you're missing half an ear and your tooth is knocked out and you're thinking, oh, I have no idea how that just happened. I don't know what I just did there. There's some people in your life who are easily angered and agape, spirit-empowered love isn't easily Angered and it keeps no records of wrong. Have you ever met somebody who it doesn't really? I keep saying that so you won't point at your spouse. Have you ever met somebody who, who keeps records of wrongs? You know, Santa Claus has a naughty and nice list. Most Christians I know keep the same list, and they just compare it with Santa at the end of the year. <laughs> they call it their prayer request list. It's not. It's not. It's not at all. Mm-mm. Just when you think they've let it go, then they bring back all the stuff you did 20 years ago and they've remembered it by date and time, you know, they've organized it and they pull out their file and start keeping record of wrong. An agape spirit-empowered love doesn't do that. And it doesn't delight in evil. This is really anti-love. It, it, these are, this is more than just saying, I'm glad when something bad happens. This is saying, I want... I want something bad to happen to them. I'm happy when I step on them to get where I'm going. And agape, spirit-empowered love, does not delight in evil. The thing that all of these negative things that Paul would string together have in common is that they all focus on everybody point to your chest and hit it hard. Most of the time in our spiritual walk, most of the time, and keep pointing, most of the time in my spiritual life, it has nothing to do with the devil or demons or boogers or black things or nothing weird hiding behind corners. Most of the time, it's me. It's me. It's me. It's because I want this, because I want the show, because I want it to be about me and self-gratification and self-centered thinking. And agape love is the opposite of everything that's me, me, me. And then there's some things Paul would say are agape love. You've got to listen fast. I'm going to talk fast. It rejoices in the truth. That's the opposite of delighting in evil. Let me tell you what that means. That means means when somebody finally does come to God and repents, you don't keep reminding them of what they've done wrong. You rejoice in the fact that their lives are forever changed. 
I'm glad I go to a church that doesn't tell people you always were, you always will be what you always were. But when you meet Jesus Christ and are radically changed by Him, you are not what you always were. You're not going to be reminded about what you always were. We rejoice in truth about people. The truth is you've been set free. The truth is you've been born again. The truth is you're a child of God and an heir with Jesus Christ. And so agape love rejoices in the truth about people, the truth about their sin. Agape love always protects and always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres. I love how Paul would write this. These four words form a related pattern. Protection means to put a roof over and trust means to put your faith in and hope means to confide in and perseveres means to stay under. And all of these things that God does for us, we should do for others. Paul would say if you have really agape, spirit-empowered love, that you're supposed to throw a protective blanket over somebody else. You're supposed to cover them up when they're offended. You're supposed to help them when they're hurt. You're not supposed to throw gasoline on a fire. Everybody walks around with two buckets, gas and water. And you and I have the opportunity to throw water on it and make it go away or gasoline on it and see how big it can burn, baby. Some of us pride ourselves in how many fires we've started. (laughs) Some of us are spiritual arsonists, always watching people burn. The Bible would say that agape love is that wet blanket that covers all of that. That's why he would say love covers a multitude of... You see, this business of love isn't something magical, Pastor Randy. It's not something rose-colored glasses. It's not some kind of feeling. Agape love is something very specific. Listen, agape love is something very specific. If you don't hear anything else, hear this, and I'm concluding. Agape love is a love and trust in God that no matter what, I am seeking the best for and the best in everybody around me. For the benefit, listen, for the benefit of their lives and their relationship with Jesus Christ. Agape love says, beyond faith, greater than hope. Agape love says, I'm always looking for God doing the right things in your life. I'm always wanting to know how God's calling you closer. I'm always celebrating when God blesses you. I'm always rejoicing when God's doing something marvelous in your life. You know why Sunday at baptism celebration when we baptize 14, 15, 16 kids and young people, you know why he's going to be crying? He cries a lot though. You know why I'm going to be crying and we're all going to be crying and clapping and carrying on and getting loud? You know why? Because agape love says, this is a remarkable thing God doing for you. Now listen, there are going to be people here Sunday whose lives are in shambles and they're going to rejoice about people making the right decision to have their sins buried under the name of Jesus. That's agape love. That's spirit-empowered love. And Paul would put it right in the middle. This is such an interesting thing to me. It begs the question, why would Paul put love right in the middle of spiritual gifts? In chapter 12, he talks about what those gifts are. In chapter 14, he talks about how they work in the church. And right in the middle, Paul says, there's something I want you to know. 
Love has application far beyond the discussion of spiritual gifts, but it speaks directly to the attitudes of a believer, especially when they start talking about what God's done for them. And they start using words and speaking for God and working miracles. Listen, here's the truth of the matter. You lay your hands on somebody and they're healed, it's pretty easy for that to go to your head. Instantly, Paul knew that when that happened, that the focus would come off of God and on you. And Paul knew something about me that I know and you know if you're honest. That fundamentally I'm selfish. I want it for me. And Paul knew that fundamentally God is unselfish. Even if it hurts him in the process, that's why Calvary was possible. And Paul said, I want you to love like that. I want you to love like that. I want you to love like that. He would continue on in 1 Corinthians, talk about all of these things that would disappear, all of these things that would stop, all of these things that would cease to exist. That there would come a time when those spiritual gifts, here's what I think he meant. I don't think he necessarily meant that these spiritual gifts would stop. I certainly don't think they've stopped in the New Testament church. You're in a spirit-filled church that believes that those gifts can still operate among us. They do on a weekly basis operate in this church. That's not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying this. Listen, listen close. When they stop operating in your life, the thing that will sustain you is love. When you can't find the words to say in English, let alone speaking with other tongues, love remains. When you can't heal yourself, let alone lay your hands on someone else to be healed, love remains. When you don't have any wisdom for your own situation, let alone a word of wisdom for somebody else, love remains. That's why Paul would write, and now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Spirit-empowered agape love doesn't happen overnight. It's not worked up, but it's got to be worked on. Let me say that again. Spirit-empowered agape love is not something you can work up, but it's something you got to work on. Something you got to exercise. Love is an action, but love is not a fireworks display. It's not always flashy. It's not always big and boisterous. And so I don't want you to make the mistake. I don't want to make the mistake that the Corinthians made, that the Pharisees made, that said, as long as my actions are right, that I'm showing love. And Paul would say, no, I want your attitude and your actions to match. The problem with the Pharisees was not that they kept the law. The problem was that they kept the law with the wrong attitude. Foundationally, they were honoring God. They had been carried away into captivity in Babylon when they were formed. The Pharisees were simply a group of guys that said, whatever it was that made God mad, let's don't do that again. (laughs) And over time, it evolved. And so this pure spirit of trying to please God turns into trying to show me. There it is again. It becomes about me and what I do and how I do. Paul would say, that's not love. 
Don't expect fireworks to go off as you grow in love. Paul would continue to write in the Corinthian passage in chapter 13 and say that when I was a child, I would speak as a child and I thought like a child and I could see as a child. And then he said, I grew up. Let me tell you what he meant by that. He meant, Brother God, when there comes a time when you and I have to mature in this love, when we can't stay where we are, Listen, if you are where you were spiritually a year ago, you are not honoring God. We have to be growing and maturing. Our faith has to grow. Our hope has to grow. And the greatest of these is our love has to grow. And when lives touch yours, when relationships that are closest to you, when family problems arise, when you don't know how to help somebody, when you don't know how to deal with an offense, when you're finally faced with that uncle that treated you so terribly bad, when you're finally faced with your molester, when you finally have to look at somebody in the eyes that offended you so deeply, when you finally have the opportunity to do harm to your enemy, when you're faced with provocation and you have to respond in love or anger, when you have the opportunity to take the spotlight When you have the opportunity to do all the talking. When it's all about what you get and what you gain. Paul would say. Beyond your faith. Beyond our hope of heaven. Grow. In. Love. Stand to your feet. Now Lord Jesus your hands are raised. Your eyes are closed. Lord Jesus I pray for my brothers and sisters. I boldly confess before them that I struggle with agape love sometimes. It's easy for me to get excited about filial love, to confuse brotherly love in this erosexually charged, saturated culture. It's so easy for me to say, well, at least I'm a good person. At least I love easy. And I really don't have agape love sometimes. It's just that sort of surface love. It doesn't have substance. But God, I pray, not only for myself, but my brothers and sisters, for a baptism of real love. That spirit-empowered love. I pray for brothers and sisters here who may be believers, who have yet to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, that God, they would earnestly seek and desire the baptism of the Holy Spirit such that that Spirit may drive them and empower them to agape love. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are full of the Spirit but who still struggle with this love, who struggle with keeping their temper, who struggle with anger, who struggle with keeping wrong doings and recording, who hold a grudge. I pray for people who are always looking for what's in it for me, self-seeking and attention-grabbing, I pray we would continue to grow. Beyond our faith in the miraculous, beyond our hope of heaven, I pray that agape love would baptize my brothers and sisters at Christian Life Church and start with me. Let it start in my heart. Let it start in my life. Let somebody know that I'm your disciple because I have love. I pray for that kind of baptism at Christian Life Church. 
I pray for that kind of spirit to grip our church in this fall season. As people would come to church, as family would be invited, as sinners would come and sit beside us, as those who have wronged us would come and sit on the pew with us, I pray for a baptism of agape, spirit-empowered love that would cover a multitude of sins this season. In Jesus' name. And that concludes today's podcast. Thanks again for listening.